like you're so important and so vital to who we are as people. Um, but to his last breath, he was concerned about his mom even. So I would tell you thank you for what you're doing to love your kids, to love me as a, a pastor here, but to leading others. You know, and, and I would also encourage you as a mom, if you see another mom that just maybe as a younger mom or is at a different season of life that you've been in before, then you have an opportunity to help mom well again. Uh, because every single one of us, even moms, need moms. And uh, we're surrounded by them. We're surrounded by you. So we're a blessed church. We're a blessed people. And I'm thankful for every single one of you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, so to start, we're going to be in John chapter 2. My name is Wesley, and I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, you know, just to, to kind of give an example of who I am, I guess, I sunburn pretty easily. And I have red hair and freckles, okay? I'm giving a lot of information away this morning, right? Um, at times, I have snot and Pop-Tarts on my clothes. Um, there is almost a guarantee that I have baby wipes in my truck at any given time. And uh, I guess the question is, what does this say about me? And the answer is, I'm a ginger dad, right? I, I sunburn because I'm a ginger, and I have snot most of the time because of my kids. I mean, there's probably an occasion when it's my fault, um, but mostly it's the kids. The reason I tell you all this is because evidence goes a long way to actually proclaim who or what and, and really anything, right? You go to a court case, evidence helps to declare or determine guilt or innocence, right? Um, and who you are. There are a lot of things about you, like, are you a healthy person as far as, like, diet? Well, look at what you eat, right? That evidence will tell you if what you're eating is healthy. Um, what are your entertainment habits? What is it? Like, you can tell a lot about someone based on just the evidence displayed throughout their life, the clues, the threads that you pull on, and you can see in our lives that are displayed. This tells us a lot about ourselves. The reason I'm telling you this is because in John chapter 2, <coughs> Jesus' own example and testimony are presented as evidence that he is the Christ. In John chapter 2, his own example and testimony is presented as evidence that he is the Christ. So today we're going to look at the evidence, we're going to see how it depicts him as Messiah and King, and then we're going to get to the question, what does that actually mean to us, okay? So we're going to start in John chapter 2, and for beginners, let's pray. So I'm going to ask you to pray for me, I'm going to pray for you, and the reality is, is that if God doesn't lead this sermon, then... Um, I'm going to try to take up just a small amount of your time, and that's probably about all it will amount to. But if Jesus leads us through this, then this is absolutely something that can transform our lives. All right, so let's pray and ask him to take over and for me to just get out of the way. And let's, let's also ask for our own hearts to step out of the way so we can step out of in front of ourselves so we can receive what he's got planned for us, because I think it's something good. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your son. You say we can come to you boldly, so here we are. Um, God, we want you to do something in our lives that is unexpected. We want you to do something that is magnificent. We want you to do something that we can't explain. We want to see your name lifted up. We want to see your son glorified, and we want to see our lives transformed by your glory so that we can now live for it. We want you to change us so that we can receive joy when we look at you, that we can delight in you. And God, we want you to use this church so that we can do that to this city. God, we can't do it without you. So uh, if, if you don't show up, we're out of luck. Uh, so, God, we are here. We're desperate. 
and you are our only hope. In your name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so first we're going to look at uh, really the evidence about Jesus, the power of who Jesus is, okay? So when we start looking about some signs about who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the Christ, and, and, and so for some of us, we may be like, what do you mean by Messiah and isn't Christ his last name? Okay, no, Christ is not his last name, and Messiah is essentially this, that, that we have an issue in which it can't be resolved by the way that you or I behave. Like, we can't work well enough to make peace with who God is and how we have absolutely fallen short because unless you're perfect, we can't sit in the presence of perfection. Okay, so that's just the summary version of this, right? So if that is the case, then how can we ever sit before a loving and caring God that is perfect? Well, he promised to send the Messiah, someone that would come and actually make all things right, make all things new, that would be able to, to redeem or make it to where imperfect people could sit before a perfect God. And the evidence we're going to look at is that Jesus is actually the answer to that issue, okay? So the first thing we want to look at is, well, if that's true, then there would be some power of Jesus that is just different than what you and I might actually think of or, or, or see as normal, right? So in John chapter 2, verse 6, we're going to look at it. We're just going to go 6 through 11, and here we are. Now, six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them, so they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some, uh, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Then the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine. He did not know where it came from, though his servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and he told him, everyone's about the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. And Jesus did this. The first of his signs in Canaan of Galilee, he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, what we have here is there was a, a situation in which they had ran out of wine at a wedding, and Jesus' mom came up to him and was like, we're out of wine. So after a moment, Jesus said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go fill these things up, and then take some out, right? Now, what's odd is, is they filled it up with water. Okay, they filled it up with water, and what the guy drank was what? Wine. That's weird, right? Can you do that? No. Okay, and if you said yes, I was going to call you out, so thankfully no one said it. Um, no, no, we can't because we aren't Jesus. We aren't, like, able to transform one sense of matter into a different set of matter. Yet... Jesus is able to do that. He has the power to transform water into wine. And I like to think about this a little bit because one of the reasons this just absolutely makes sense is if you can speak and say, let there be, and then light appear, is turning water into wine really that big of a deal? Like, this is a small sign, right? Like, like I mean, big sign, the sun came up this morning. It was beautiful when it did. I could see it coming up on my ride here in this morning. And this, it was a red glowing sun coming up. Miraculous to see this ball of gas every single day. It rises, goes around, sets, comes back, goes around, sets. Yet Jesus can do this because he can create out of nothing something. Now, we might ask this question about Jesus having you know, this power 
why did they go so specifically, and I'm just going to jump on this for a second, but why did they specifically mention that they use purification jars? And I thought this was a really neat thought, so I just want to share it because it's, I thought it was neat, and I nerded out on it. Uh, the inclusion of this detail, it shows us that the rituals associated with the Old Covenant are giving away to something far greater. Like, think about this. External purification has given way to an internal cleansing. So all these things that we do to try to fix our own lives are irrelevant. They're irrelevant. When I tell you that if I get up here and preach for 30 minutes and God isn't in it, it's worthless, it's true. It's absolutely true. But if God is in even the smallest of voices, in one word stated, then God can change the shift of, of creation itself. What you do with your life and how you live it. And, and listen, we always get caught up on these bins where we try to fix us. It's just a lot more natural for us to try to figure out. I mean, we do it every new year, right? We make resolutions because we're trying to fix the broken parts of us. Listen, far more important than you trying to fix what you know is jacked up is to see God at work in your heart and in your soul because the internal cleansing is actually going to be transformative and it will change your future. It will change who you are. It has absolutely shifted the destiny of my life because Jesus came and made me new. He's saying all these ritualistic ways, all these little processes we put in place, all of these things that say, look, I'm really a good person. It doesn't make them bad. He just says there's actually something way more important. It's that Jesus is right here. It's that God has transformed who we are. Now, we have to ask a question about this, and, and this story is, it is a weird story. So we have to ask this question, is this actually true? Because if it isn't true, then the Bible can't be trusted. Okay? So if it isn't true, then the Bible can't be trusted. Or, we only have two choices of this question. So what do we do with this story? Either the Bible isn't true, or we have to realize that Jesus is actually just different. There's something unique about this person. There's something unique about this Jesus, and I already highlighted it. He can do this because he's God. Like, he can change water into wine because, well, why can't he? Right? Well, why can't he? If he can speak, if he can go up to a dude that's been dead for four days and say, and this is Lazarus, and he can say, hey, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out fine, it just makes sense. So we've got to have these two perspectives, or really the only two that can come. So if Jesus can transform water into wine, then we also have to realize that he has the power to do something even greater than that. He has the power to transform your life and mine. He has the power to transform our lives. And if you don't believe me, check this out. In the last verse that we read, we talked about Jesus did this. It was the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and he revealed his glory. And then who, what happened? What happened? His disciples believed in him listen it was in this moment that the disciples saw jesus the evidence that he had just displayed and they immediately believed who he was they believed based on seeing the power that jesus has and and, and it is in this moment that you begin to see a transition in their lives you see seeing jesus as the son of god the lord god almighty the redeemer the creator the King of Kings, it changed their lives. And when we encounter Jesus like this, it will absolutely shift who you are. It will change you. It will transform your life. It will transform the lives of people around you. It will transform this church. Like when we encounter Jesus as the King of all, 
We see his power. We see the hope that it gives. We see what it means for our lives. It will absolutely shape us. It will change us. It will transform us. And then we go a little further, and we're going to see some more evidence. Check this out. If Jesus has power, cool. But he also has a passion. We see it displayed in chapter 2. Because the Messiah is coming so that we can be saved, right? He's coming to give us hope. Which you would hope that if someone was coming to help you, they would be passionate about you. They would have a passion for this redemptive story, right? We're going to look at the passion of Jesus as evidence. So here, and we're going to focus here more than anywhere else. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. It's in verse 13 and 17, 13 through 17. And it says this, the Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found people selling oxen and sheep and doves. And he also found that the money changers were sitting there. After he made a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple. Just have this image. Everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And the disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is just flat out angry. He's angry. All right? Now, here's the question that we might actually come out with just right away. So if Jesus is this Savior, this loving God, this caring God, then how is genuine love compatible with anger? How is genuine love compatible with anger? Listen, I, I love Courtney. She's my wife, if you don't know. And if you thought my wife's name was something different, you probably thought a really weird situation just happened on stage. But that is her name. Um, I love my wife. But if someone tried to hurt her and I sat back and watched, would you believe that I love her? No. And I'll just, full disclosure, you hurt my wife or my kids and you will see what anger looks like. I'm going to take care of business. The reason that I'd say that is not because I love you, like I don't love you. It's not even that I wouldn't be forgiving. It's that I love my wife. It's that I love my kids. Now, spineless love is hardly love, and this was a guy's name is Gerald Burkert, and I'm from the mountains of Tennessee, so that could be wrong. I don't know. Maybe Borchardt. But that's, it just felt weird to say Borchardt on stage. I think Borchardt got me. Um, spineless love is hardly love. So the question we have to ask then is, what is it that caused Jesus to be angry? Right? Don't we need to know that answer? And I think it's actually twofold. I think, first off, and very apparent, is it's the love for his father. The love for his father. Because what's happening here is this is happening at the temple. And this is a place that represented where God would rest with the people, where they would meet face-to-face with God. Like, this represented a place that was dedicated for God the Father. And Jesus comes in, and he's angry because they have desecrated his Father's house. Solomon called this temple a place for God's dwelling forever. It was a special place built for his glory. And Jesus walks in, and he sees what was dedicated to be a representation or a reflection of God. And it's a flea market. 
And you'll see over and over and over that Jesus is passionate for his father. He loves his father. He wants us to love his father. That's why he came. So we can love his father the right way. That we could be in his arms. That we could be accepted before the father. And I think he was passionate it was displayed for his people. I think for people. Because he saw this house desecrated. But it's really important if we understand where it is that this happened. It happened in the outer court. Now, we may not be real familiar about the tabernacle or the temple, but I want to point this out. The outer court was the place where the Gentiles would come. This was a place where people that would be considered outcasts could come and experience God experienced what was designed to call them towards him. He had a passion for people. They would come into this place, and you can imagine, this marketplace is going on, and you're coming in, and you already have all these weird feelings and emotions about what God is like, right? Because you've already seen it played out. It's all about getting money, isn't it? Or it's all about this, or it's all about control. It's all about these things. And then you walk into the temple. This place is supposed to represent the true God. And then you come in and you just see basically this perverted version of what worship is supposed to be where we're setting up and you have people in here that have set up shop to take care of themselves, not to help people see God. This court at this time had little to do with God. It had more to do with progress. Right? Self-progress. I'm not talking about the society. I'm talking about fattening your bank. Convenience. People came in. Gentiles would see. And their first thought would be like, okay, I get it. So this Jew God, this Jewish God, this, this father God, right, is just like every other God. He's a prop to get money. He's a scheme. It's a pyramid scheme. Right? Go to the birds, go to the goats, go to the oxen, go to the sheep, get some money changed over. Everybody, everybody does good. And then I get to go home feeling as if I've paid my penance. Gentiles would come in here and say, okay, I get it. It was a perversion of worship. Here's why. Because what this place was supposed to be, it had not become. It had actually become something very different. And it was robbing the Gentiles of being able to see God. And all they could see God was... Uh, God as was a God of greed and a God of self-worship for men because it was all about putting yourself and your own needs above what it is that God actually desired for you. Now, they had rejected honoring God and this is just the bare bones. If you boil it down, this is what it is. They rejected honoring God to honor themselves. Ultimately, that's what's happening in this court. These people had rejected honoring God over the fact that they could honor themselves. They wanted to move ahead in life, so to speak, and they had forgotten that there is more important to honor Christ than to put themselves first. They saw a hurting neighbor, and they ignored the deeper needs. They, they, they wanted riches, approval, popularity, success. This had become their pursuit, and the purpose that they had had been rejected. This is a perversion of worship. Now, here's the thing. It's really easy to be judgmental here, right? Like, we can look at these folks and be like, suckers. 
glad that ain't us, right? But I think we have to ask the question, have we ever been on their side of the table? Have we ever been on their side? Because honestly, we're not, and here's the thing, like when I've read this, I've read this story, I don't know how many times, but man, this, as I was preparing for this, this is where this hit me the most, was that I actually can identify with these money changers and these cattle salesmen, like, way more than I think I ever thought I could before in the past. So I want you to think about this. Have you ever been in a position where you knew you should not be having this conversation? At a water cooler, in a pew, in your car, on a cell phone, whatever, but this juicy gospel was just too good to walk away from? Besides, I mean, you really do want to fit in and be a part of that group, right? You want to be approved of with who it is that you're talking about and talking with. Have you ever done this? Instead of serving or leading your family, have you ever came home expecting your wife to just have supper plated up and your kids well behaved? And when that hasn't been the case, you've been frustrated or lashed out? Have you ever felt the need to share an encouraging word or your faith and ignored that call? Because let's face it, I just don't want to feel like a moron or weird and I don't want to be rejected. Have you ever dropped the ball here? Have you ever chosen self over serve? Have you ever chosen self over reflecting what Jesus is like to someone else? I mean, and I'll be honest, I have. And and this place happens most easily in my heart. And the moments that I shy away from being what God has called me to be, I mean, we're called to be an image bearer of him. We are called to reflect what the goodness and the love and the grace and the mercy and compassion of Christ is to everyone that we encounter. We are supposed to reflect him. We are made in his image. The scenarios that I mentioned are not pot shots at anyone in this room. Those are basically instances in my own life in which I have failed, and I fail way too often. It's a whole lot easier to want to be served than it is to serve someone else. And it's a whole lot easier to want to be approved of when we know that when we point to him, it means we, we are most likely going to be rejected. Because we all like to be approved of, don't we? That's why we seek out A's on our report card. That's why we want good reviews at our annual review with our job. That's why we really seek when we serve someone a thank you, right? Because we want approval. God didn't call us to get approval from each other. He called us to point to him. And I'm guilty of perverting worship way more than I'm okay with. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you are too. And these are the people that Jesus drove out. grace and forgiveness because Jesus and his promise of his death and resurrection is like here's the deal we can't just pull up our socks and think that we're going to do better we can't just work harder at this we can't just try harder we can't just do better it's not the answer 
and I'm not trying to bring us into this place where we just feel like we're stuck in a pit now because oh, we're just perpetual screw-ups. The reality is these failures in your life and in my life are, are indicators of a deeper, deeper need. Jesus made a promise, and we're going to go into that next. But listen, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave so that you and I in this deepest need of our own little hearts can be met by embracing him in the grace that he offers and the empowering spirit that he gives us. Listen, I didn't tell you these stories so that we would go on a pit. I tell you these stories because these are all little pieces of evidence in your life and in my life that we need Jesus more and more and more every single moment of all of our lives. The greater things that we talked about meeting in this city cannot be done unless you and I rely on him. Your greatest day as a mom, as a dad, as a son, as a daughter, as a friend are never going to be met apart from Christ. These places where you may feel like a failure are just reminders that we need to run to him. And the beauty of it is, is he has the power to transform. And then if he's passionate about his people, he also cares to do it. The next thing would be is that he made a promise, a promise of Jesus to secure it. So, so he's got the power to do it, the passion for it, and then he made a promise to show it. And that's where we're going to go, the promise of Jesus. In John chapter 2, verse 19, read with me. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And then in 21 he says, but he was speaking, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Jesus foretold his death and resurrection. This was the definitive evidence that he was the Messiah. I can't remember the exact number, but throughout the Old Testament, there were prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of what Jesus or the Messiah would fulfill. And every single one of them were fulfilled in Jesus, including the death and resurrection. He made a promise. He made a promise, and that promise was, you can destroy me. But I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Not only does he have the power to transform your life, the, the passion to transform your life and my life, but he also made a promise to do it. He made a promise to do it. He fulfills his promises. Listen, if dude can make a promise to die and come back, and then he makes a promise to be faithful to you, listen, if he can do that, he'll do the other. The other's a whole lot easier. I mean, like, just in our terms, it's a whole lot easier. In God's terms, they're equal. Because, I mean, after all, he's God, right? Big and little are the same size. Gives me great hope. Tall and short. Bobby and I have a hope. <laughs> this was the definitive evidence that of his identity as the long-awaited Messiah. His death and his resurrection were an outpouring of God's love and grace upon us. He said that this would happen. And, and be a sign of his authority. After it happened, listen to this, he, he died, he rose, and then in Matthew 28, he gives us this commission, right? But in here, he says this amazing statement. He says, all authority is given to me under heaven and under earth. Listen to this. If all authority is given to him, and he makes promises to provide for you and for me, 
to always come through, to always help us. Listen, if he makes promises to take you and I in our inadequacies, in our weaknesses, in our shortcomings, and he says, I'm going to make something great, he says, in fact, I don't call people that are able. I only call unable people so that I can be glorified, and I'm going to do something amazing with you. Listen, when you feel unable, it's all right. Jesus is the answer. And the thing is, is he has promised to come through every single He has the power to do it. He has the passion to do it. And he made a promise to do it. We can look at this evidence and we can see that Jesus is clearly the Christ. And what other person would we ever have be the Christ? He came in the power of God with a passion and love for you. And he keeps his word. Jesus keeps promises. He has promised to love and be faithful to us. He transforms us. He is passionate for us and for his glory. He is faithful, able. He's good. He is the Messiah. And he is exactly who we need, past, present, and future. If I had to sum it up like this, I would say this. Jesus is king. Whether you acknowledge it or not. Nothing is going to stop him. Nothing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being the king of our hearts, the king of our souls. God, I'd, I'd have it no other way. And thankfully, you wouldn't either. Because, <laughs> I mean, really, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what you think. And you made a way for me. You made a way for us. God, we thank you that your son, Jesus, is clearly the Messiah. We're thankful that it gives us the, the hope that you have given us a purpose, that you have given us life. So God, I would ask that you would lead us today, that you would transform us. Father, we fail way more than we even want to admit. I'll speak for every one of us. I don't care. I know we do because we're human. None of us are perfect. We're far more imperfect than we're even close to perfect. Personally, I fail as a husband and as a dad on a daily basis. I fail as an employee. I fail as a pastor. I fail as a friend. Because you love me, you say you'll help me. I'm asking you to please change my life. I'm asking you to please change the, the, the life of the people in this church. I'm asking you to help my family. God, we want to look like you, and we can't do it without you. So we ask it in your son's name. Amen. We have communion set out, and we have it in the back as well. In the back is a gluten-free option. And what I would say is this. We have crackers and we have juice, and the purpose of this is this alone, is that we go to it, we approach it, and we remember, we remember the resurrection, we remember the death, we remember that Jesus, his body was broken for you and for me, and his blood was poured out for you and for me. And when we take of this communion, what we're doing is we are saying, we dip it in the juice and we take it and we put it in our mouth and we eat it. And what we're really saying is this, is that Jesus, 
You are my king. I identify you. Commune with me. Live in my heart. Be with me like I could not imagine my life apart from you. You are my savior. Thank you. I remember the sacrifice you made for me. Table's open.